Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. Well, welcome back and welcome to another exciting episode of Parusing's The Power of Values. Today promises to be another insightful and informative conversation with a peer. And uh, before we jump in, just an important reminder. Again, thanks for the feedback. Thanks uh, for sharing just how the learnings you're gaining and the uh, some of the chuckles as well as some of the possibilities that have come from our peers sharing are impacting you. Just really appreciate you sharing all that. Um, so continue to uh, hit the like button. That's one of the fastest ways to to spread the love. And, uh, you know, this holiday season, love somebody and send it on out to them. Say, man, this was great. Listen, today we have Mike Brunson with us. You're going to love, love his sharing uh, a bit about his background and everything. And your friends will love hearing that too. Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, my sincere pleasure, Michael. Hey, you're well, man. We really appreciate it. Well, hey, the opening question is, were you born this way or how did you get to the valuation profession? Yeah, I was not born this way. Oh my goodness. Imagine that. Someone else who was not born into this profession. Yeah, I uh, I know a few of those people, but uh, no, I was uh, the food and beverage manager at a country club here in Las Vegas and two appraisers were members. Okay. They went separate ways and one of them offered me an office manager position. Oh, okay. That would have been, gosh, that would have been 1990. 94? Wow. 94. Okay. And uh, I accepted in 95. And back then, you didn't have to have any pre-qualification education. You didn't have to have any experience. Oh, wow. All you had to have was a letter from whoever it was was going to be your quote-unquote supervisor. Mm-hmm. You that in, gave them the money, and 10 days later, they sent you your registered appraisal trainee certificate. Holy smokes, that's a different world. It was a total different world, man. <laughs> so, you know, they didn't they didn't care about the qualifications of interns at the time oh, in wow. any way, shape, or form, at least in the state of Nevada. Yes. And, uh, you know, I jokingly tell people that the first part of my career, at least the first two years, I am the poster child for everything that was wrong with the appraisal profession. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Oh, we got to hear about this. So you're the poster child for everything that was wrong. Oh, go ahead, speak it all. On day three, let's see, day one, I went on six or seven inspections. On day three, my supervisor wasn't feeling good and handed me three inspections and said, you're the appraiser today. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, man, that is amazing. And I imagine you crushed it with a whole day of experience under your belt. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I look back on that. And at that time, even on my third day, I was a better appraiser than 99.9% of every appraiser I've ever met. Oh, my goodness. I'm like, hey, you know what? It's good to know how good you are. It's so good to know how good you are. <laughs> I look back on that and I just cringe, man. I just think, man. It was, it was, you know, the mid nineties and the era of the magic three by five adjustment card that told you what your adjustments were going to be. I have 
actually had a little three by five card that told you what your adjustments were supposed to be. No, no analytics, no data, just, you know. Oh my gosh. Gotta love the being informed of what your adjustments are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had, we had support, right? We could just make a photocopy at the three by five card and say, <laughs> I've got evidence in my work file. <laughs> Dude, and it was the wild west in so many ways. I mean, there used to be in the state of Nevada, there used to be a, a state authorized comp check form. Really? Right. hundred percent. It's somewhere on one of my hard drives that I should probably destroy. I love it. Anyway, um, it was a state authorized form. And as long as you use the state authorized form that said, this is not an appraisal, like four times on it. Okay. But clearly said the value of the property is between X and Y or would likely be between X and Y. But this is not an appraisal. I mean, it's not an appraisal. It's a broker opinion of value. I mean, come on. Well, who knows what it was back then. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a state authorized comp check form. Oh, wow. So, that is amazing. Crazy. The world has changed. What a phenomenal first years. What else did you get to experience in those precious first two years being the poster child? You know, it was interesting. I, I At the end of the two years, right, you have to sign up for your test. And okay. you, have to, you know, you, you did have to get qualifying education within oh, all right. the okay. year before you actually took the test and then applied for an actual appraiser's credential. Got it. So I remember back in the day, I think it was called the 501 series through the Appraisal Institute. Was there anything the 401 or the 501 series where you took 401 or 501 A, B, and C? And it was like a full weekend, maybe three-day course mm-hmm. the, for the A part. Yes. Full weekend for the B part. And then the C part was business practices and ethics, but it was a two-day course. And uh, anyway, I remember... Coming back from that first weekend and sitting down and talking to my then supervisor who had invited me to become part of the company, right? Oh, okay. The company, blah, blah, blah. And I remember I came back and I went, I am not sure that everything that we're doing is copacetic. I'm just, I have some concerns. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And I remember he sat me down and said, uh, said, uh, you know, there's a difference between the way they teach you to do it and the way you actually do it in the real world. Don't oh yeah. Worry about that. Just take the rest of your classes. So I remember I went back, same, same instructor and about 70% of the class was the same too. Mm-hmm. Took the section B course and came back and I had the same conversation. I was like, listen, I am 99% certain that we've got to change the way we're doing some things. And uh, got the stronger language, don't worry about it, <laughs> or find yourself another place to work kind of a yep. conversation. And then I went and I took the, the business practices and ethics section of it, and I pulled the instructor aside and I said, hey, listen, I'm, hypothetically, if this, this, and this... For a friend, I'm asking for a friend. Um, you know, and his response was, yeah... I, I would tell your friend that he should probably find another place to work or you're going to be invited to find another place to work. <laughs> and, um, and it involves making big rocks into small rocks. So anyway, I came back after that course and I, and as amicably as possible, said, listen, I'm going to go out on my own. Um, it wasn't 100% amicable, but it was it was okay. So I remember I set up my first LLC 
opened up my shop, started looking out to bring on my own clients. Yeah. I was worried about how little I really knew after two years of training in the basic sure. course. So I had like this moment of clarity and I sat down and I opened the appraisal of real estate, whatever iteration that was. And I just read it from cover to cover. And, and the other thing I did around that same time. So you, in order to be, to have access to the MLS in our area in Las Vegas, you have to join as a broker member. Yes. Association. And then you have like this little carve out that they, it was somebody's like afterthought. Well, what do we do with appraisers? Well, they're brokers, but they're not brokers, blah, blah, blah. So we'll make this little subcategory, but you have to go through all the, the entry level stuff that the, oh, yeah. that the uh, realtors do and the brokers do. and pay dues to the national association of realtors. Absolutely. So I've been a realtor as long as I've been an appraiser, but they had this guy come in and he was a special agent with the FBI. Really? Yeah. I don't remember why he was there specifically, but he, it was interesting because he, he asked, he said, are any of you in this room appraisers? And like four of us raised our hands and he goes, all right, everybody else can check out. I'm only talking to the appraisers now. He goes, but, but you guys, you need to know that people in the justice department are watching what's going on with appraisers. Wow. And we're looking at cases of fraud that are fairly substantial. And he goes, and I just want to tell you guys, you are the low hanging fruit. You Mm. know you are the bad guys. Yeah. But you are the low hanging fruit. You're the first conviction we're going to get. And I can convict you with very little effort. Wow. And he's talking to four of us in the class and he looks at us and he goes, do you, do you want to know why it's so easy to convict you? And he turns to his briefcase and he pulls out the hard copy of USPAT. And he goes, because this document is the law and I've read it and you haven't. <laughs> Dang. Not the right kind of moment. Boom. <laughs> it was a moment for me because I realized I, I had a credential as a certified residential appraiser for the state of Nevada. I'd taken the 15-hour course and passed it. I'd taken oh, yeah. the seven-hour course. Yep. Familiar. Once as a as an intern. Sure. And I passed the national exam on my first go and all that kind of good stuff. I'm a good student, but he was 100% correct. I had never read the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. So that night, I sat down and I read USPAP from cover to cover as well, including the advisory opinions, the statements that were still in existence back then, and all of the other information. And I decided at that moment there there would never be a regulatory document that I did not read as soon as possible if it affected the work that I was doing. Mike, that's a, a fantastic warning sign to get early on in the profession that I, I think a lot of people are probably not in the profession any longer Wish they might have heard from the start because I have to agree with everything you were told from you know both anecdotal and firsthand experience. I mean, that's that's exactly how it goes. I, I appreciate you mentioned about the appraisal of real estate. I, I don't remember how many years I was in the profession. It was probably oh at least half a decade. I don't think it was a full decade, but at least half a decade before I even knew that book existed. I'm like, look, I, I it was one of those people who had gone to college and. And had done um, some postgraduate work and 
did an, an additional degree while I was actually in undergraduate work. I mean, I have paid for a lot of textbooks. I've read a lot of textbooks. And that was one that through all of my education and training, uh, I didn't even know it existed. I had my own concerns and beefs around the industry, but that's kind of like, seriously, you're going to go and push past people through this little 75 hour course. And man, they, wow. I would be willing to bet that, that the appraisal of real estate is similar to the Bible in that there are, I mean, I don't know what the current stats are on the people that identify themselves as Christians, but the vast, vast, vast majority, it's less than 1% of 1% of people have actually read the entire book. That's a good point. I would be willing to bet, and I'd put serious money on it, that mm-hmm. less than 1% of practicing appraisers have actually read the appraisal of real estate. And you know, the appraisal of real estate is a lot better than it used to be. I mean, to, I give credit. I own a couple versions of it. Uh, it, it it's a valuable tome. It is a valuable tome. And I mean, it, it sets the stage for the economic principles that undermine, yes. or not undermine, but underpin. Underpin. Basis yeah. for what it is that we're supposed to be doing. So anyway. Oh, man, that's phenomenal. So here you are. You're in your class. You're getting uh, instruction from an FBI investigator. And how does that change where you're at in this early profession, no longer under your former supervisor? Well, it was interesting. You know, it's 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 a whole different world when you're on your own early and you have to sign that report and you know that you are 100% responsible and that there's nobody that's going to hold your hand. My more recent experience proved that that's true no matter how long you've been in the industry if you if you end up an invited guest at a regulatory agency it doesn't matter what your credentials say um, you know there are certain circumstances on individuals who maybe get a pass uh, their affiliations or friendships but if you are one of the lucky few that gets the invitation you are 100% on your own 100% that's a great point so did you uh, stay an independent there after you left your supervisor or did you join another firm or what happened next? No, I stayed independent. And um, in that process, so I'm a bit of a researcher by nature. So I had a copy of it for years. I could probably go back and find it. But um, somebody had written their master's thesis in either business or economics, on the appraisal industry. And they had compared the profitability of mid-sized or independent mid-sized and larger appraisal firms. I don't remember how they were defined. My memory tells me that independent was as defined. It was the appraiser and an assistant and and maybe an office manager. Got it. Mid-sized was, I think, 10 or less, and large was 11 or more. Really? 11 or more is considered large back then. That's 11 amazing. or more was my memory. Yeah, I, maybe it was 20, I don't know, but I think it was 11 or more. This is in the you know late 90s. Yes. And the conclusion was that the profitability, even with scaling at the time, that the profitability of the large firm and the profitability of the independent firm were identical. Ooh. And the conclusion of the researcher was that if, if if quality of life was one of the variables that you should need an independent firm with an appraiser, a trainee, and an office manager, that that ranks the highest profit and the greatest quality of life and independence. So that was the route I went. Interesting. 
that was the route I went and it stayed that way for probably, I'd say five or six years. And then just because of the nature of the market, things getting busier and busier and busier, we ended up bringing on about half a dozen people at one point, but I, but I'd never had a firm of larger than 10 people. So I would have never qualified under even that original qualification as a loss. Wow. That's amazing. So here you go. You're, you're out on your own. Like you said, it's a whole different experience when you're, when you're independent and you're signing as opposed to working under somebody else. And you, uh, throughout time have the opportunity to, to bring on other people. How big of a, a market did you focus on? And were you always in one type of property versus another, or were you, were you residential and commercial or just commercial or just residential? Yeah, I was trained predominantly as residential and Vegas exploded right, right after I got my credentials. So it didn't make a lot of sense for me to move into the commercial realm until I started teaching. When I started teaching around 2002, 2004, um, I started doing commercial work, but I always, I just did it under other appraisers. You know, I affiliated with and worked with others. I, I just maintained a residential credential. I didn't bother getting my commercial credential until 2015. That was the point where I decided, no, there's some, there's some work that I'm giving away to other people that doesn't make sense to give away. So uh, I hear you on that one. So what was it like being out on your own with some of those first early assignments? Was it was it pretty easy because the properties were had high conformity or was it quite challenging because you're a newer guy in the market and you're getting all the difficult assignments? Well, so I've always gravitated towards complex work. My undergraduate was in psychology, but I was focused more on experimental psychology. So I had a background in statistics. I had a background in computer modeling. You know, I remember writing a market trend spreadsheet and starting to use that, you know, in the early 2000s. Wow. You were ahead of your time. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I have a really good friend who is a Excel guru that I met, I want to say in 2005 or six. Wow. And he kind of looked at the spreadsheet and he goes, oh, you could make that so much better. And I went, well, actually you could make that so much better. <laughs> and so um, I've been using an iteration of that spreadsheet and a few other tools. Yes. Uh, ever since. As that country song says, I have friends in low places, but sometimes it's good to have friends in Excel places. There you go. What if you don't have somebody in your phone or in your contact list that is stronger at Excel than you, then you, mm -hmm. should, find one. you should find one. But, you know, and what I'm hearing, you know, you talk about your uh, appreciation for and desire for learning. And as you, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm not going to have a document go by that I'm not familiar with, haven't read over. You know, that's a whole different approach to this industry for people that are seeing it as professionals see it and not just maybe a journey person. Uh, might see it. Okay, I'm just kind of passing through. You know, that person's going to check some boxes and move on. But what I'm hearing from what you're sharing is both an interest and an appreciation for that type of in information and application. I mean, experimental psychology, statistics, computer modeling. I mean, that quickly differentiates you as someone to be valuing uh, real estate assets. You know, it's it's interesting. I did expert witness work for a while and I'm getting back into that again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I used to get kind of a side eye from attorneys when you're going through voir dire about yep. like, the background in psychology. How, do you, how does that go? How do you go from psychology to appraising? And I'm like, well, 
appraisers are analyzing past behavior mm-hmm. in individual markets in order to to predict what the most likely behavior is going to be. I mean, that really is more of a description of psychology um, than it is economics. Um, and in many ways, people look at economics and they forget that economics is a social science. Yeah. We're good looking point. at past behavior in order to determine trends and make predictions about the future. They're, they're you know, even, even SPSS, if you're familiar with SPSS, yep. the most powerful statistical package currently in, in yes. the world, mm-hmm. it's, it's the statistical package for the social sciences. That's what SPSS stands for. So we got to remember that um, the statistics-driven, data-driven world that appraisers aspire to. Yes, it's it's a social science. So people talk about the art and the science of appraising, and I think it's a bit of a misnomer. There's no art to it. We're not creative. <laughs> <laughs> That's so- an important distinction. There is no art and science. I love we're, that. We're social. We're social economists, if anything, or behavioral economists, if anything. Oh, that is a fantastic clarification. I've even been caught saying some of those things. And Mike Brunson's setting the record straight for all of us. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. So did you do expert witness work back then as well? Or is that something you've only gotten into more recently? Uh, I got my USPAP instructor certification in 2004. Okay. So either two or four. And shortly after that, I got engaged as an expert on a class action in construction defect litigation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess performed fairly well. And yep. there there really is a dearth of people out there that do well in in testimony. They yes. might they might write write a great report. They might, yes. you know, have great backgrounds and analytics and things like that but there's there's still a really high demand for people who don't wilt under cross-examination and for whatever reason the way i'm built i was born this way i like to argue and it it doesn't it doesn't hurt my feelings when you tell me i'm wrong yes it's okay if, if we disagree which is um not something that everyone's interested in uh, but I think it would be helpful for at least a large number of our peers uh, that get an opportunity to listen to this. What is it like getting into that first case? Um, you know, you get you get an invitation or, or you know, you kind of it's kind of like dating. You know, you're, you're vetting each other, kind of getting a sense of like, do they want to work with you? Do you want to work with them? Kind of walk us through that first one, because a lot of people say no, because they just don't know what's showing up for them. Um, obviously, you were a USPAP instructor, so that a whole different level of credibility coming in. But but nonetheless, there might be something as simple as, hey, uh, one neighbor is disagreeing with another neighbor over the property line in the garage, and they need an appraiser, and they want you as an expert witness. Walk us through that, Mike. Well, you know, the most common entry level, I think, is divorce work. And yes. I've consulted on a lot of cases after a divorce case where um, I was consulting with an appraiser and an attorney who were invited guest in front of a state regulatory. Oh, invite. it's always great to be an invited guest. Yeah, it's not. I have proof. Uh, <laughs> that said, if you're going to do expert witness work, just make sure you take it seriously. 
I guess the one thing I'm proud of is as far as an invited guest before a regulatory agency in the state of Nevada, I think to my knowledge, I'm the only appraiser who was never charged with the violation of the work file. <laughs> That's impressive. So it, it came up with 70 or 80 other things that I had uh, allegedly done wrong. But, okay. But uh, the work file was not one of them. So just take it seriously and remember that if you're going to do litigation work, there's another party on the other side that their only goal is to make you look like an idiot and to to prove that you have zero credibility. And if you are the kind of person that gets flustered when somebody is calling you names or if somebody is implying or overtly saying that you're you're stupid, then it's probably not for you. If you can have a gentlemanly argument and you can in the face of somebody telling you that your entire premise is flawed and therefore should be rejected and you can hear what they're saying and you can focus in on the flaws in their argument and respond kindly and professionally, well, then you'll probably do really well. I was lucky on my first case. I had a guy who had done a lot of litigation previously who really? was working with me in the wings. And he was like, I'm oh, okay. not interested in testifying anymore, but... I'll make sure to help you prep. I'll make sure to you know, help you with knowing how to deal with the attorneys. I was also really lucky. I met Randy Bell and Orrell Anderson, who mm -hmm. at that point in time were partners early on in my litigation career. And um, Orrell Anderson was, was very kind and willing to kind of introduce me to the world of real estate damage economics, uh, it's another book, you know, if, if you're an expert, if you haven't read Real Estate Damages, mm -hmm. it surprises me how many experts quote it, but you can tell they haven't read it. <laughs> it's just one of those things. If you're going to do that kind of work, you should probably read it. Yes. At least have a background. Anyway, I, I highly recommend it. And especially in our, I think I said somebody referred to it as a desert of appraisal volume right now. Yes. A drought of appraisal volume. Drought, yes. Everybody wants to go do litigation work, and I, and I highly encourage you to do that. That's mm -hmm. just take it seriously. It's it is a different world, and it and you're you're playing with people who do this for a living, as it were. That's a good way to put it. That whole playing for a living kind of thing, as opposed to just uh, hacking through it all. Yeah. It's not how it goes. Right. Absolutely not how it goes. So obviously, um, your training. Uh, having successfully passed the uh, USPAP instructor exam, um, put you in a strong position. I mean, that's that's one of the things I experienced as well when I first got into the expert witness world. Um, not having, I mean, I, I experienced around courtroom and stuff, but not as an expert on behalf of someone, but being parties to it based on a lot of the business stuff we used to do. Sure. And it's, well, it's a, like you said, it's a whole different hot seat yeah. when the spotlight's on you. And it's amazing how your mind sometimes just goes blank. Yeah, that is the worst feeling. The absolute worst feeling when somebody asks you a question and you know the answer. You know the answer. You cannot for the life of you. It's like right there. Yeah. And there's like a door between you and your knowledge. And you're like, open the door. Open the door. Come on. You know this. Yeah. No, that's happened to me twice that I remember once vividly where it was one of those moments like, I don't know, almost like a Twilight Zone thing where it was an out-of-body experience almost. I remember like 
practically looking down on myself and longing to smack myself going, answer the damn question. <laughs> and I felt like it took forever, you know, and, and, and maybe it was three, four seconds of me just sitting there. And I said, real honestly, I remember looking up and going, counselor, I know the answer to your question, but I'm going to ask you to ask it one more time. Oh, that is a powerful, powerful, like pause. Give me some more time coming at me. It's like putting time back on the shot clock for those with the basketball reference. Well, I, and you could tell he was really frustrated with me, but this is where my psychology background comes in too. I remember I just closed my eyes and I, I, fully facing him, but I closed my eyes and, and he asked, what are you doing? And I said, I said, I'm taking away all visual distraction. I will really want to pay attention to your question to make sure that I give you the absolute best answer. And you could tell it, it threw him off his game, which by the way, is a really good thing to do <laughs> as an expert. But I love that. I close my eyes because if you do that, you shut down all of the visual distractions that your brain is processing and you're able to really focus your attention on the question itself. That was the reset that I needed. And I actually use that now often when I'm doing expert work and anybody who does it, closing your eyes and listening to a question that you know is important. is just, it's a valuable piece of advice. Man, that, uh, that's worth all the marbles today there, Mike, and we're not even halfway through yet. That's phenomenal. That is good. <laughs> wow. So closing the eyes and ask. Yeah. And then suddenly uh, it's, it's as though the magic key shows up and unlocks the door to the knowledge. It's right there. And you're just kind of in your mind, go through and pull that knowledge right off the shelf and share the answer. Well, I vividly remember the question, right? So, but of course, attorneys don't ask direct questions, right? So he, he asked, we were told we were arguing about value. And, and he goes, can, can you help the court understand what creates value? And in the context, he, he, he said it in such a way that it was referring directly to the property, what makes this mm. property valuable. And I see. I knew, I, or I could sense that what he was asking was the economic question. What are the things that create value, right? If you've read the appraisal of real estate, right? Or if you've ever yeah. taken a, uh, an intro economics course. And so when I asked him to restate the question and close my eyes, I remember D-U-S-E, D-U-S-T, and then I had an internal argument. Is he asking about what creates value or what creates, what's the second one? It's not value, it's um, a market. And I, okay, value is D-U-S-E. So I was like, well, it's demand, utility, scarcity, and effective purchasing power. That's the textbook answer. If you're yes. directly involved into what creates value for this particular property, then maybe I misunderstood your question. And his response was, no, you understood the question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you're an expert and somebody asks you what creates value and you can't give the four basic components of economic value, then yes. you know at that point, it's pretty easy for him to question your credibility as an expert. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's a good one. That's a good one, Mike. You know, it's, it's for those that haven't had the opportunity to be an expert witness. Um, you don't realize that the person, like you said, the person on the other side there may know the information as good or better than you, but they're not the appraiser. 
although they may have a consulting agreement involved, and man, it's oh man, it's uh, it it can be a tenacious, <laughs> tenacious experience. It can be, but it can also be very rewarding. And uh, yes, and it unlike other aspects of our profession, it tends to be consistent. No, that's true. That is uh, that is definitely the case. So did you stay in the expert witness uh, lane and continue to build that up? Or did you also have other forms of valuation practice? Well, it doesn't make sense to not do um, lending work and litigation work to me because I, I had actually seen a couple of experts who were asked, and I thought this was a creative question by the opposing attorney. When was the last time you actually wrote an appraisal on this type of property? Mm. When was the last time you appraised yeah. this type of property? And the opposing expert in the case I'm referring to said, well, it's been it's been a few years, but I, you know, blah, blah, blah. They asked the same question to me and I went, what's today? Tuesday? So yesterday. <laughs> I, I was I was focused on preparing for this trial, but yesterday I completed, signed and delivered an appraisal on this type of property. That does that does score your points and credibility with either a judge. This was a bench trial, but you know, a judge or a jury. So anyway. That is fantastic. So how early on as you were, uh, once you were an independent, did you start following back on that research you came across about uh, being independent or even a small firm in terms of starting to bring on some teeth? Yeah. So I, th I think it was five or six years into, into appraising. Again, the market was just getting so hot and heavy in Vegas that I couldn't, I couldn't do the work just myself, one assistant and an office manager. So I brought out another appraiser and another trainee, then another appraiser and another trainee, and then another appraiser and another trainee. And I moved out of actually production to more of kind of, a you know, making sure everybody was okay and being mm -hmm. not an office manager or of a business owner and trying to make sure that the clients were happy and, going out and finding more business and things of that nature, things that, that a lot of independent appraisers never do and never experience. And I think that's an important differentiation. You know, I, I quote Michael Gerber's E-Myth an awful lot, which uh, is, is pretty worn these days and hasn't been updated since the revisited version over the original. But, uh, you know, it just talks exactly what you're speaking to. And that is, there's a lot of really talented people who are technically proficient and, and they do not know how to own and operate a business. And then there are people that some make the transition into actually being a business owner and operator, and you have to give up some of the other stuff you were doing, or you got to hire other people to handle all the rest of it if you're going to stay in that technical role. And, and I think that's one of the challenges, and it's encouraging to hear that uh, you've sat in both seats and sounds like you've done relatively well in both. Well, I've moved back, part of it by necessity uh, because of issues with the state of Nevada and whatnot, but... I kind of moved back to the um, lifestyle business um, where it's just myself and a, an assistant. It proves with the original theorem, right? I'm, I'm a big fan of reading the data and then testing it myself. It proves the original theorem. I mean, I've been very profitable even while, you know, taking a case all the way to the Nevada Supreme Court and being limited in what I could do, you know, just myself and assistant. You can You can make it work. So yes. uh, there's nothing wrong with having a lifestyle business as long as you understand that that's what you have. It's not scalable. It's not, there's no 
Uh, it's a hundred percent blue sky. If you stop, it stops, and that's okay, right? If that's what exactly, uh, if you want something else, like you're saying, you either have to step into a different role or you have to hire somebody to take over different aspects of what you do. I just, yeah, I've said this to a lot of appraisers. Um, you're in this because you are, and and you you're in this because you're the type of person that is you like solving problems and you like the independence that comes with this. But, you know, that doesn't mean that your highest and best use is to do what you've always done. We analyze yes. highest and best use every day as appraisers, but so many of us don't analyze our own highest and best use. What is the best use of Michael Hobbs? It certainly isn't pulling data and confirming individual sales comps or whatever it is that somebody else in your firm does, right? Yes. Your skill set is is far beyond, not that that's, it's not impugning the person who pulls the data and verifies. Not at all. It's just that your skill set, your highest and best use is doing something else. Yes. Go be the highest and best you. I'll go be the highest and best me. I like that. That's a great way to put it. Go be the highest and best you. One of the things I also appreciate, Mike, about a lot of the work that you've done, and you mentioned uh, Randy and Aurel, is you've been a good bit around uh, lit- litigation, damages. You know, a lot of data analysis goes into that. But love to hear you share a little bit about some of that work that you've done, because most people don't realize um, just how large uh, of an opportunity that is and how few people are really in that space. Yeah, you don't have to be a testifying expert. You know, whatever it is you're good at, right? If you, you're you good at verifying commercial sales data, you can work for any litigation firm, any firm that does litigation in the United States. And you can work for 10 of them, actually, if you want to, and charge a really good hourly rate and never put on a suit. Yes. You can get up in the morning and be dressed the way you and I are dressed right now. It's not business casual. It's just casual. And yes. You can make a very good living being part of the data and analytics team for these litigation firms. Um, if you look at some of this stuff that Randy's done, I mean, he, he appraised the bikini atoll, right? You want to give people a little bit of background on that? Cause you know, some of us are like, Oh yeah, of course. The rest of us are like, I have, did you just say he wears a bikini? Yeah. yeah. Randy oh, wears a bikini and you can tell him I said so. <laughs> oh. Hey, Randy. Hello. Hey, Sorry if you're listening, Randy. Um, I have no idea if he does or doesn't, and no judgment if he does. I'm sure he looks great. And anyway, um, the Bikini Atoll is, of course, where the United States did a lot of its nuclear testing. And um, it is a habited part of the world. <laughs> Somebody realized that all of that nuclear testing had long-lasting detrimental impacts on mm-hmm. real estate, uh, yeah. the land, the development potential, mm-hmm. people who lived there. And so he, he was one of the parties that was involved in the litigation to determine what the damages were to the bikini atoll. I mean, that's huge. And at the time, I don't remember if he was with Price Waterhouse at the time, but, um, you know, it was kind of the beginning of of his his career in real estate damages. It's when he became the quote unquote master of disaster, right? Yes. And but beyond the Bikini Atoll, that people may or may not be familiar with, because we have some 
younger generations coming into appraising these days, everybody's familiar with ground zero after nine. Uh, visited the city for the first time recently and visited the 911 memorial and visited that whole area. And Randy and his team were the ones that, that conducted the valuation of that specific site for the real estate damages attributed attributable to the terrorist attack. Yes. He also was the gentleman who, or the appraiser who, the gentleman appraiser, who appraised, uh, I always get this wrong, was it flight, the flight that crashed? Was it? No, you're talking about 93? 93 that crashed into the field before it got to the White House? I think that was it. I could be mistaken. I think it was 93 as well. But anyway, um, he appraised that site. And, and go to go and read the case study on it in the back of Real Estate Damages. It's really interesting the way he yes. approached it. You know, his whole mindset is different because he looks at it and he's like, okay, well, in the moments before, that was an income-producing, crop-yielding field with a certain amount of value as an agricultural parcel. The moment that plane crashed, that value changed. Its highest and best use changed. It's now a national monument. So if you're going to value it, you have to value it and you have to consider what the similar national monuments bring in. And you have to consider not just ticket sales, but swag and just all Man. that kind of good stuff. So. It's just amazingly complex when you get into it. Now, I say it's amazingly complex. You're still using the same three approaches to value. You're still looking at cost, income, and direct sales comparison, right? And you figure out which ones work in your specific circumstance, which ones don't. Maybe I know that they they did a discounted cash flow analysis there, but very rarely are you going to do a DCF in litigation because nobody understands true. <laughs> Good luck explaining to a jury what a discounted cash flow analysis is. So, keep it simple. You got to just talk very plain yep. terms that make things understandable to the common man and the common woman. So, but the analytics, your question was focused on the analytics and the opportunities there. Any of the residential people that are utilizing Spark or Gandhi Soft or any of the Alamo Titan analytics, things like that. If, if they're if they're more than just pressing a button using it, right? If they're if they're users who are using it and then actually looking at the data in order to draw reasonable conclusions, those are the people I'm talking to. Well, you can go work for a firm that does litigation tomorrow, you know. And there's a learning curve just like there is in anything else. But you know, find the firm that in your market is known for doing litigation work, speak to those appraisers and just tell them, hey, listen, I'm good at analytics. Let me know the next time you need somebody to help you and that's your foot in the door. That's fantastic guidance. Absolutely fantastic guidance. What, uh, I mean, granted, Randy's had some just storyteller kind of cases. What are some interesting assignments that you've worked on there, Mike? Oh, we worked on a, we worked on a class action litigation. It was the first one I ever worked on. It was really interesting. It was a, a construction defect case. And um, it was in the period of time in the run-up before um, the market crash. So it was around 2003, 2004. And so logically, you would think that 
if you're in a big subdivision, and I think there were 2,000 individual houses that were part of this class action. It had been certified as a as a construction defect class action, or a, so now a construction condition, right? One of those, a defect. Anyway, um, it was a con- construction um, condition case with 2,000 individual class members, and then I can't remember how many joiners there were, but they'll close to seven or 800 joiners. So you're looking at a big population wow. of affected big. properties. So, and it's a well-known case. So you would think that that would have a, an adverse impact on the overall value of homes. Again, from, from Randy's book, Real Estate Damages, it talks about, well, how do you determine that? Well, you look at a proximate affected and approximate unaffected community that are similar characteristics and then you look at a distant affected and a distant unaffected community, you do a very large analysis. And in that case, I was capable of doing the, the, the analytics, but at the time I had a good friend who had a doctorate from MIT in housing economics and finance. Come on, are you kidding me? Dr. Bengsta, Dr. Benta Evanston, I believe. Wow. What was her last name? Benta is... I'll never forget her name because it was so unique. And uh, I knew her through a friend at UNLV and I had met her a couple of times and I, and I, I said, Hey, would you be interested in doing the um, statistics for me? And she was like, absolutely. So she, she <laughs> went in with her PhD from MIT and crushed the statistics. And what was interesting, Michael was, yeah. At the end of the day, when we compared the properties that were in the class action to properties that were not in the class action, there was actually a beneficial impact to being in the class action, which I, I had really? to sit back and go, Dr. Evanston, I, Bengta, I don't understand. Is it possible your math is wrong? And she's like, we did a differences and differences study. Uh yeah, you get it. But you, 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 she went back. She was verified. absolutely certain that the math demonstrated that being in the class was beneficial to property values. And so we looked at it, we looked at it, it didn't make any sense. You know, what are people thinking? People will pay more to buy a lawsuit than they will for buying a property that doesn't have a lawsuit. What is going on with that? Doesn't make sense. So at the end of the day, the ultimate conclusion was that the impact was benign. Yeah can classify it as a detrimental impact uh, in the DC matrix, but ultimately one of the, one of the DC categories that Dr. Bell came up with is a benign condition. And so it was a construction condition, but ultimately the data proved it was benign. I happened to be on the builder's side in that case. And when you've got the math saying it's benign and me coming in and saying it's benign, I remember in testimony, this was just deposition testimony, but I remember the opposing attorney sure. said, I see you've got some really interesting math in your study. I I just want to warn you, I was a mathlete. And I went, that's that's impressive. I was not. I played rugby. <laughs> I love it. I didn't do the math. Dr. Bankster Evanston did the math and she's got her PhD from MIT in housing economics and finance. I don't know what her hourly is, but I'm sure we could get her in here. And he didn't ask one question. (laughs) (laughs) So it was really funny. Um, Other than that, we've had some interesting cases. Like, 
you know, I worked, there's some confidentiality. If I've testified on them, I can talk about it. So, yeah, well, of course you can't, we got to honor our test, our, our confidentiality agreements, everything else. And those that have been published, that's, you can talk about all those. It's a different story. I can talk about the two cases that went all the way to the Nevada Supreme Court that, that we won recently. I mean, so that one of them was a case where a port, an adjacent lot, a portion of the golf course was sold to an adjacent lot. And the client in the case was never told that the adjacent lot had been extended. And that happens a lot of times. And uh, there are deed restrictions where, okay, we're going to extend the lot, but you you own the land, but you can't do anything with it. You can put lands on it. You can put hardscaping on it. This was a weird circumstance where you could actually extend the building envelope and it changed the orientation and the view and privacy issues of the property. That was an interesting case. We had to figure out, one, is there any impact in the market? And if so, how much? I didn't get to issue the opinion on it. I just developed the survey and set it out to, you know, the entire email database of brokers and agents in the state of Nevada and all that kind of good stuff. But so that was interesting. And then the other case was about super priority liens, which is a rare occurrence where we had to figure out, you know, the value of a property that sold at HOA auction for pennies on the dollar. The real question was, was the sale on the date of auction, was it reasonable? Was it commercially reasonable? <laughs> and to someone who doesn't know anything about it, the simple answer sounds like it doesn't seem like it, but you know, got to look into the details. So there was one attorney who, and this was a jury trial, and um, he argued this so well. My analogy was really simple. I said, I grew up in the era when you used to be able to go to the back of the grocery store and there was a dented can section. Yes. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. And you could buy the dented cans at a deep discount. Now, you can't do that anymore because yes. if somebody gets botulism, they now the store, right? Exactly. But my analogy was this. If there's there's a can of corn and it's got a price tag on it for 99 cents and you don't have a coupon, what's the value of that can of corn? 99 cents. As long as people are buying it, right? If people aren't buying it, it's worth whatever you can get somebody to buy it for. But if people are buying it, it's worth 99 cents. Now, if you've got on that same shelf, you've got a can that doesn't have a label. Is that can worth the same amount as the can with a label? Okay, well, you've got some uncertainty. So in normal circumstances, the property with or the can without a label is going to be worth less, right? Very much so. Now imagine you've got the normal can with the label sitting on the shelf, and right next to it, you've got a can without a label. And right next to that, you've got a can without a label that has a dent in it. If you were going to arrange those from high to low, value-wise, right, the top yes. one being the one that's worth the most and the bottom one being the one worth the least, how would you arrange them, right? And it's a it's a rhetorical question. Most people, in their minds will have already arranged them, can with a label, can without a can without a label, and a debt, right? And then the question becomes, is there even a market for the can, the dented can without a label? And... If so, if you can demonstrate that the dented cans without a label are selling, then you have to ask yourself as an appraiser, which other cans are comparable? Are the cans without a label comparable? Are the cans with a label, are they comparable? Yes or no? And I have a very strong opinion on that. Other people disagree with me. Of course. Uh, 
And if, if once you decide what the comparables are, you then have to ask the question, can I compare? I would say that the can with the label is not comparable because it differs in rights and risk. The dented can without, now you've got this issue where you have to determine, is there a measurable discount? And if it is, well, now you're into the world of real estate damages. The can with the label is your hypothetical unimpaired value. The can with the dent and no label is your current as-is value. And the difference between the two, the delta between the two, is your measure of damages. Yes. Fascinating mini course here in damages analysis. I mean, it, it, it really touches on what you said from the start, and that is for those people that enjoy or have the propensity for solving puzzles that are not always clear cut, there is great need and demand for these services to help people uh, address where there's differences. And just because there's... Yeah. You know, many times there's not only two sides to these as well. There could be multiple sides. Uh, and it's a great way to really uh, sharpen one's skill and uh, really step out. You've uh, you've definitely done that over the course of your career there, Mike. I'm, I'm curious, given everything you've experienced and what, uh, what you've gotten a handle on and been exposed to, when you look out over the next three to five years, is there anything that... Uh, you're looking forward to or excited about in the future of valuation and appraisal? So the biggest answer for me, I'm a USAP geek, right? I've actually read the book. <laughs> Hopefully more than once. Yeah, yes, more than once. Several times a year, every time it comes out. Yeah. So, But uh, the, the most exciting news for me is that the current iteration of the Uniform Standards with an effective date of January 1 of 2024 has yes. no expiration date. That wow. is a wow. huge wow. change in our structure. Anybody who's been appraising for a decade or more, I mean, remember when it changed every year? Oh, goodness. And, you know, how can your uniform standards of professional practice change every freaking year? That's always been an argument that I think <laughs> it makes no yes. sense. If it changes every year, it's neither uniform nor standard by definition. Yes. So, or you're trying to say it's the then current uniform standards, like they change. And yes. So the fact that the fact that the the other communication has been separated, you can buy it as one electronic document. But if you buy the hard copies, I mean, we're not doing the video, but you can see, right? This. Oh, yeah. This is the reference manual. Yes. This thickness is the yeast fat. I mean. Oh, I, 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 you know what? You take that thing and you just, you peel it apart in three sections. You're like, this is only like, you know, X number of pages. You're like, it's this three sixteenths of an inch yes. <laughs> versus one inch three sixteenths. Yeah, exactly. Just like, <laughs> so clearly. The fact that we now have no expiration date for the standards, I think that's good because now we'll get to a point where the users of professional appraisal services, the professionals themselves, and the regulators mm -hmm. might find themselves on common ground, both in the interpretation and the application wow. and the use path. I think that's the most exciting thing that potentially could happen. I think it's going to take some time because we still have 
you still have a vast difference of opinion in regard to how certain aspects of USPAP should be interpreted. I mean, mm-hmm. joke among USPAP instructors that if you, is that if you get five of us in the room and ask a very specific question, you're going to get seven different opinions. <laughs> and, and we'll all be right. Oh, so true. hopefully we can fix that and get to the point where uniform standards are actually in understanding application and use. So that, that excites me. I'm also really excited is that I'm seeing a lot of new people come into the industry, young new people. It's been a complaint for a long time that, you know, the aging of the profession, I'm, I'm over, you're over 50. Yep. The statistics, I, I could pull it up real quick, but I don't want to bore anybody. If you want to see a really good breakdown of the appraisal profession, the appraisal institute does an annual report mm-hmm. on the appraisal profession, the number of credentials, age range, the median age, the average age, all that kind of good stuff. You can get that on their website, whether or not you're a member of the AI or not, but it's a really good report. And if you're going to go into the industry, it's good to look at that. So you know where you fall. It's true. I mean, I've been doing this 25 years. Uh, appraiser in Las Vegas that's been appraising longer than I've been alive. And I'm yes. And they're still actively appraising. So good for them, right? Yes. But it does give you some insight into, you know, the longevity that's possible. Are things changing? Absolutely. You can no longer say it's based on my experience and get away with it. <laughs> Uh, you and I have altered that. I've read it in reports. Oh, yes. You just can't get away with that anymore. You got to have a data point. I was thoughtfully in a conversation recently with with someone who I was uh, reviewing their work. Uh, we, we do a lot of review work for for peers. We we actually review other, uh, you know, peers will have us review their firm's work for because also they have a, a separate set of eyes on it. And we're happy to do that. I do the same thing. Actually, I don't ever assume that we're the last ones that should read our own reports. Uh, but not everyone takes that approach. Uh, and I was reading a report and, and in there, I was like, Hey, I get it. Uh, I understand how you got to your conclusion. Makes sense. I said, but you know, there's one small problem and I don't know if it's with the data that I was like, but, uh, ouch, I've owned an awful lot of buildings. Um, I've developed, been a property manager, you know, I've been, I've been, I've worn a lot of different seats around the table. And, uh, in that neighborhood, like, here's some things I've observed and I, your data doesn't touch on any of those things. And I appreciate that because you probably verified all your sales and you know, my, my experiences are a little older. I totally own that, but it's just, it's like a hunch. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a bit of a hunch. Could you just share with me how you got there? Like, well, in my experience, this is what it is. And the sales price reflects all of the buyers and sellers actions. I'm like, we are not going far on this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can lead a horse to water, right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, I love the people. Uh, but, you know, that's why I'm a huge proponent that, you know, it makes a big difference when you've uh, banged up some knuckles and got some dirt under your fingernails because you've done a little bit more than just appraise the property. you got a whole different sense of, of some of the uh, performance attributes or characteristics uh, yeah. as opposed to just, there's your sales price. Right. I absolutely love it. Yeah, great. Interesting new people coming in. Bringing new life, new blood, new new perspective, and uh, new experience to the profession. Yeah, it's exciting to me. Um, I think real property appraisal has been a very good career for me. It's treated my family well. It's treated me well. For those that are sick and tired of aspects of it, you're really good at doing value. 
contemplate personal property, contemplate business valuation. Yeah, great. Right? You're using the same skill set, just in a different arena. You're going to have, you know, a learning curve just like any new venture, but your learning curve is going to be a lot less steep than somebody who's coming into it brand new because you already understand the economic concepts of value. You already understand the economic concepts of market. So, you know, personal property, you know, if you're a baseball fan and you love baseball cards, man, the national expert on what baseball cards are worth. Great point. Just how much somebody will pay you to appraise mm-hmm. their baseball card collection. So whatever it is, antique furniture or antique cars or RVs or whatever, boats, you know, go be, I forget there's a different term. You're not called an appraiser. You're called a... Valuer? No, when you do boats, you're a Oh, maritime. I don't know that. I know someone who does that. Um we're hoping to have them on in one of the upcoming seasons, uh, but yeah, you should because it's really interesting. It was a guy, it was a guy who sat through one of my intro courses here in Vegas, and he was from the Boston area. And just somehow in the conversation, a guy named Carl Dutch said something about, "Oh, you should go become a." Oh, I almost had it, and the guy did. He decided he was going to go learn how to uh, appraise boats, and he now travels the world. Yep, appraising. Cargo steamers, yachts. Wow. He's got a great life. <laughs> so Love it. Love it. Love it. Mike, I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to have peers sharing perspective, uh, shining a light on possibilities in the profession, and, and hopefully uh, sparking some, uh, some possibilities for individuals that may not have known some of the areas of valuation of using the whole approaches, not just any single one of them, can really lead, hey, maybe being a, a maritime valuer. Who knows how that'll turn out? Like nothing else, maybe stepping into the courtroom. But very much appreciate it. And as we bring this uh, another exciting and informative episode of Parusing's The Power of Values to a close, just a quick reminder, it's the holiday season. Make sure to spend some time and share the love of this podcast with somebody else because you have no idea uh, what joy or uh, what relief you might bring them through what they gain through the sharing of knowledge of our peers. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Michael, it was my sincere pleasure. I hope we get some content that's valuable and helps somebody. If not, I had a good time. So in that in that manner, it, it was worth the effort. Excellent. Definitely appreciate it. Until our next episode. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pavru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks again for listening. And until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose, create the change that you seek.